0: The double jeopardy provision, when it speaks of being put in jeopardy twice for the same offense, that offense can refer to a state offense and a federal offense. Those are separate. That's that's the doctrine that was at issue in gamble. Hello, and welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of
1: Chicago Law Review. My name is David Smith, and I'm joined today by Michael Scodro, a partner at Mayor Brown Chicago and lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School, who previously served as Illinois Solicitor General. We're discussing the Supreme Court's recent criminal procedure decision in Gamble versus United States, which upheld a doctrine that allows federal and state governments to prosecute the same defendants for the same conduct. Thank you so much to Professor Scodro for joining me on the podcast today to talk about the recent Supreme Court decision in Gamble and the separate sovereign's doctrine, as they call it. Thanks for inviting me. Before we dive into the case itself, I thought it might be interesting to talk to you a little bit
0: about your background.
1: You're actually a perfect person to yeah. go through a Supreme Court case, given uh, your experience arguing at the Supreme Court. Oh,
0: well, thank you. I, I, it uh, Arguing in the court is definitely a unique experience, and for an appellate lawyer, it is, uh, without a doubt, a highlight in one's career. I spent a year clerking for Justice O'Connor on the court and watched a lot of advocates Go through that process, and very much wanted to join them uh, when I when I left the the clerkship, and uh, was fortunate to find an opportunity to do that. Uh, first two arguments at the uh, uh, as, as Illinois Solicitor General in the Attorney General's office, and then one since that time in private practice.
1: Well, that's fascinating. What what is that experience uh, like? Kind of standing before the court in this monumental moment.
0: It's interesting. I mean, the the, the run-up is a lot longer typically than the the run-up, which can always be substantial for an oral argument. But the the number of moot courts that you go through, the amount of preparation is um, just a little bit more intense when you're talking about the US Supreme Court the majesty of that room is something spectacular that has to be experienced it's not as large a room as most people think but it is grand and when you're sitting there uh, waiting for uh, your moment at the lectern, it is extraordinarily – it can be both anxious but also really exciting. But once you start and, and, and particularly once you get that first question, reflex kicks in and you're, you're in the moment. You're arguing with uh, a court as you would be any other court. The, the kind of room be, you know, behind you sort of recedes into the background.
1: And I guess I'm wondering, you know, your experience as a clerk and as an appellate advocate, does that kind of shape how you think about the law, how you might read a case like
0: Gamble now? Well, it's interesting. When you read a case like Gamble, you you certainly think about how it was lawyered, um, what arguments were being made. Uh, Now, at times, the court does some of that work for you, you read the opinion, and they're very overt in terms of which argument they're referring to from from, this is the government's argument, they make this point, Uh, for example. Other times, it's more difficult to tell where the thinking is coming from. It may be the court's own, it may be that they're picking up on a strain from a party brief, from an amicus brief. Those are definitely thoughts that I think occur to uh, many advocates when they're reading a Supreme Court opinion, especially one one with as many potential angles to it as Gamble, you start thinking about, well, how did the attorneys sort of frame these points?
1: Before we dive into the actual opinion, I just wanted to share one line from it, because I thought it was interesting on the, the angle of advocacy. So in Alito's majority, he wrote a little dig at Gamble's attorney here. He said, when Gamble's attorney was asked at argument which other treatises he found most likely to have informed those who ratified the Fifth Amendment. He offered four, but two of the four treatises did not exist when the Fifth Amendment was ratified. That little section there brings to mind the question for me, do you think oral argument can actually change the outcome of a case? How often does that actually happen, you think? Are judges kind of set in stone coming in?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll tell you from my own experience, clerking for a couple of courts and also having heard a number of Appellate jurists, state and federal, talk about the impact of oral argument. Um, there seems to be a consensus, and it seems right to me from my own anecdotal experience, that oral argument can frequently have an impact on how an opinion is written. And oftentimes, that's extraordinarily important to your client, depending on whether they're a repeat player in that area of law, for example. In terms of affecting the actual holding, you know, affirmed, reversed, vacated, and remanded, I think my own sense is that that, and I've heard many judges say this, that that is the rarer case, but even that exists absolutely. And so, the enterprise of oral argument, I think, it remains an extraordinarily important part of appellate advocacy. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, for example, the Seventh Circuit, we we are fortunate to live in a circuit that takes that as a point of pride that every counseled case is argued in the Seventh Circuit. It's not true of all courts, state and federal, but it is true there, uh, certainly true in the U.S. Supreme Court. Almost all cases are orally argued. They have the occasional summary disposition, but um, I do think it plays an important role. And it can, it can, in the rare case, affect the actual outcome, but again, quite commonly, I think, affects the way the opinion is written.
1: Yeah, I think you can definitely see that here, <laughs> right. which is interesting. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think we, we can turn to the opinion sure. itself. So if you wouldn't mind just taking the audience kind of through, you know, what, what are the facts of this case? How did it arise?
0: Sure. So you have an individual that um, w- had been convicted of a violent felony. And under those circumstances, both state and federal law prohibit the possession of a firearm. And so first the, the state um, uh, went through its, its prosecution of – Uh, Mr. Gamble and he he, at the end of the day ended up serving I think it was one year Um, and then the federal government uh, then prosecuted him and uh, with the result of a multi-year sentence coming out of the subsequent federal prosecution, the understanding being that the the federal government had concluded or federal prosecutors had concluded that the initial state, state sentence was inadequate given the severity of the crime. And so the question comes up where many of us are familiar with the notion of double jeopardy. And so you hear that, that fact pattern, you think, well, this was someone who was twice put in jeopardy for the same crime. But there is a longstanding doctrine and you you mentioned it, the separate sovereigns doctrine that has existed for many decades. And the the notion there is that the double jeopardy provision, when it speaks of uh, being put in jeopardy twice for the same offense, that offense refers can refer to a state offense and a federal offense. Those are separate. And so one can be twice prosecuted uh, based on the same fact pattern. That's, that's the doctrine that was at issue in Gamble.
1: Yeah, and that language, just to be clear, is from the the Fifth Amendment, correct? And so, I, I guess the kind of logic of the decision is that an offense is the law on the books, and not the underlying conduct that's being prosecuted with that law.
0: That that's exactly right. The majority takes the view that offense is sovereign specific; that a sovereign defines the offense, and therefore, the term as used uh, in the Fifth Amendment would have been understood to refer to something created by the sovereign, that is a prohibition created by the sovereign, as opposed to transgression, for example, which might be the – at least in the majority's view might be a word that, that would um, uh, that would capture the notion of, of conduct. Sure.
1: And I believe you mentioned this, this doctrine has been upheld in several past Supreme Court cases. Right. So that gave Mr. Gamble and his attorneys a pretty big burden in terms of uh, making their argument.
0: Yes, it's exact it's always hard to ask the court obviously to change course particularly where they have been on that course for as many decades as as the Supreme Court has been on the separate sovereigns course. Um, obviously, they did. They did get some votes, and we may talk about that. But, but uh, yes, you're absolutely right. That's always going to be an uphill. uphill yeah. Uh, I,
1: the only justice who might disagree was uh, Justice Thomas, who kind of wrote a whole concurrence on that subject alone, and not so much on the uh, the central meat of the case, which was interesting.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. And and he ultimately, as you as you said, it was a concurrence, which is equally interesting. It's. Sometimes you might imagine a justice talking about the need for a in his case, he argued for a lower stare decisis standard that is he believes it ought to be um, easier than the existing doctrine would would have it or at least different, but I think he would say easier um, uh, to overturn past precedent specifically he would say if any if if a past decision is quote unquote demonstrably erroneous, he would say under those circumstances that's the lodestar. If it's demonstrably erroneous, judges have a duty to overturn it. You almost expect such a a concurrence or a separate opinion, I should say, in instances where uh, perhaps he favored overturning Precedent, Uh, but he didn't in this case. He actually, as you said, went through a fairly lengthy discussion of his views on stare decisis. But at the end of the day, he he would agree to side with where the court has been for many decades on this.
1: Sure, and so that majority was Thomas as well as six other members of the court. So quite a substantial block to uphold the separate sovereigns doctrine.
0: Exactly, it was Justice Alito and and six others uh, in the majority. That's exactly right. So.
1: What arguments did Mr. Gamble's attorneys advance for overturning that doctrine and why, why didn't the majority buy them?
0: Yeah. So the majority walks through um, the, a number of arguments that were raised by Mr. Gamble to, to overturn the precedent. They, they rely very heavily on the notion that when the Fifth Amendment was ratified as part of the Bill of Rights, that – members of of Congress, that American lawyers, Americans generally would have understood based on precedent at the time, would have understood there to have been a prohibition on uh, on, on duplicative prosecution, even in cases where you have different sovereigns. And for that, uh, his attorneys relied on cases in one case called Hutchinson in particular, involving – a crime committed overseas and then you're back in England and the question of whether you can be prosecuted for the same offense. The court walks through those cases, Hutchinson, and, and the, the challenging part of Hutchinson is that it's not sort of directly recorded. So you're getting, trying to get at what happened in Hutchinson indirectly from other cases, uh, that rely upon it. But the court is ultimately unpersuaded, the majority. They, they conclude that uh, you know, Having started with the idea that offense, as we said a moment ago, is, is sovereign specific, they essentially you know, decided that something was needed to rebut that and they didn't find that something in, uh, in the accumulation of these past cases, and nor, nor did they find that something in the treatises, the contemporaneous treatises. Uh, of the time, sure.
1: Yeah, as you say, the the whole uh, the heart of Alito's opinion is really just this lengthy historical yes. analysis. Right. So it it seems like that's where the bulk of his kind of analytical moves are coming through. Is just what does the history tell us?
0: I think that's right. He he devotes some, but less ink to some of the other arguments, like the idea that we have. Um, we have more things that are subject to federal criminal prohibition. More activity is covered by federal criminal law today than it would have been um, at any time in the past, certainly uh, uh, in the distant past. And so um, they, they turn that away as well, um, you know, on the theory that that is, is getting at more of a policy concern than at an original understanding concern.
1: And one other argument that was kind of interesting that Gamble made was that The Fifth Amendment was only recently incorporated to apply to the states as well, and therefore that should change the understanding of the separate sovereigns doctrine. So could you kind of explain that argument and why, again, Alito and the majority rejected it?
0: Yeah, so you know the the theory there is that so incorporation is is somewhat modern at least uh in the grand scheme of things um and that that's the notion that the 5th amendment is incorporated uh, and applied to the states as you said through the through the due process clause of the 14th amendment. The theory there for for Mr. Gamble would be that um the decision incorporating the 5th amendment uh, sort of changed the landscape legally in such a way that it no longer made sense to have this separate sovereign's doctrine. So what had been true originally uh, pre-incorporation, the Fifth Amendment, including the Due Process Clause, uh, would have been applied solely to the federal government. That is, the the federal government could not uh, prosecute after the states. If the states had first prosecuted, that would have been a violation. But the states could uh, follow suit uh, from uh, from the government. Again, this, this would have been true had there not been a a separate sovereign's doctrine. And so the notion is that pre-incorporation, separate sovereign's exception was needed to sort of level the playing field. That would permit there to be this sort of, uh, you know, the sort of mirror image. You could, the federal government could prosecute after the states just as the states could after the federal government and so it played an important role the, the theory that mr gamble uh, advanced was that the need uh, for the theory disappears if that's its rationale the need for the theory disappears the moment that the 5th amendment is incorporated against the states now you could do away with the separate sovereigns doctrine and actually you have parallel uh, processes. The federal government can't be second to the states just as the states can't be second to the federal government. Uh, neither, of course, can prosecute themselves multiple times. Um, and so there's no need to to have the doctrine. The, the court didn't – again, the court – uh, you know, fell back on the idea that as a, a matter of original understanding, uh, what happens with regard to incorporation really isn't the issue. For the majority, the issue was what would offense have meant at the time of the ratification of the Fifth Amendment, and uh, that, that that should not be subject to change based on uh, subsequent decisions about incorporation.
1: Before we move into the dissents and think about what they said, given that seven justices agreed with this reasoning, it it seemed like it was quite a tall order to ask to overturn this doctrine. So one thing that came to mind for me is from uh, the perspective of advocacy in terms of – Gamble's attorneys wanting, presumably, to get his conviction overturned. Right. Why pursue this strategy? It, it seemed like this is the one argument they were making on appeal, yeah. and it's a pretty tough one. So I don't know if you have any insight into that, but uh,
0: you know, my sense is simply that they they faced an entrenched doctrine, but one that they had some reason to believe might be inconsistent with the view of of some portion of the court. They probably would not have known what portion. My, my guess would have been, and I would have to, to go back and dig into the lower court filings, but my, my best guess would be that they really didn't have, this was such a well entrenched doctrine. They had very little else to advance in this regard. Um, that this was a straight up the middle example of the kind of, uh, successive prosecution that the separate sovereign's doctrine had embraced and permitted. And so if they wanted relief, uh, their relief was going to have to charge straight at it. Sure. Um, and, and they obviously did. I mean, with, with great gusto, uh, charge straight at it.
1: But I guess they did get two votes, and those votes were right. Justices Ginsburg and Gorsuch, which yes. is an interesting breakdown, each of whom filed their own opinion. <laughs> so I'm wondering – you know, why did they go their separate ways? What different points are they kind of raising to attack the majority opinion here?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, th- I do think they came at this, obviously, they, they are traditionally thought of as occupying different positions on the kind of philosophical, um, political lowercase p spectrum in the court. You know, for Justice Ginsburg, I think, you know, very much comes at this uh, with regard to, uh, you know, th- well, let me put it this way. They, they both start uh in a common place. And that is this idea that the these are not separate sovereigns in the in the truest sense, not separate sovereigns in the sense that two separate countries would be separate sovereigns. Uh, that rather the, the people uh are the sovereign in the United States under our democratic system. And so they I think share the idea that there's something artificial about talking about two distinct sovereigns in this space. You know, Justice Ginsburg is is uh, certainly – and I think Justice Gorsuch as well. They both reveal that this is, you know, their concern about individual liberty and the notion that – and I, I would say some of the rhetoric is, is perhaps even stronger in Justice Gorsuch's concurrence uh, than it is in Justice Ginsburg. But they both make the point that, look, the double jeopardy clause exists uh, as a, an effort to protect the individual's rights. Right. It's not an effort to uh, multiply or compound the authority of the sovereign, and from that as a starting point, that very much I think motivates their thinking that if there is some ambiguity here, we ought to be reading it in a way that increases the 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 power or the the freedom rather of the individual vis-a-vis the state. And I just think, you know, in terms of writing separately, they just took slightly different, they had slightly different emphases. Obviously, Justice Gorsuch, I think, you know, engages, um, they both do to some extent, but, you know, differently and slightly more heavily on the, on the historical sources, for example. And so I think, uh, you know, they, they decided to take slightly different tacks. They wanted to include, I think, some different language and rhetoric in making their points, but, but there is a common strain of individual liberty through through both of them.
1: Yeah, two very forcefully written sense, yes. especially
0: Justice Gorsuch's dissent, which is – some would say that that almost libertarian strain, yeah. um, as opposed to sort of you know the, the more liberal you know term is used to describe Justice Ginsburg often, but libertarian for Justice Gorsuch. But this is an instance in which you know those views really um, reach the same result.
1: Yeah, and just to tease out a few last things that sure. might be interesting in the dissent. The majority and some commentators did make this argument that if you erase this doctrine, it'll have perverse consequences. Even including if someone has been prosecuted by a foreign government, they'd no longer, you know, be able to prosecute be prosecuted by American courts. But I, I think this does making the the people of the United States the sovereign would give you ground for a principled distinction
0: there. No, I completely agree. I, I think there's plenty of language in the in both dissents that you could use to limit the to, – to preserve – that is to say to preserve a separate sovereign's exception when you have f- foreign governments involved uh, but that eliminates it when you're talking about the state and federal government.
1: And One other interesting thing that comes out in uh, Justice Ginsburg's dissent um, is the so-called Pettit policy. I think this came out when we were talking about the facts a little bit which yes, is that right. federal prosecutors actually as a matter of policy – Tend to decline to prosecute individuals who've been prosecuted by the states. Right. right. So it's kind of interesting that, in response to the separate sovereign doctrine, the Department of Justice has carved out a policy yes. in the opposite direction.
0: And, and and I and the point also was made in dissent that, uh, relatedly, that for many many states as well, they have a policy against uh, against the, the if the federal government has first prosecuted. Have so I, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it it is certainly an effort applying traditional starry decisis standards and this question of reliance, sort of how big a change would this be, how heavily are individuals are, are, are parties, I should say, relying on the existing the existing rule. And I and, and that of course went directly for Justice Ginsburg, went directly to one of the factors, that that factor in the starry decisis analysis, that yeah, this really doesn't occur that often.
1: Um, so I think maybe an interesting point to end on would be to step back, given the majority, the concurrence, the dissents, and think about you know the Supreme Court only agrees to hear a select very few number of cases right. given all the petitions that they get. So what about this case do you think made them want to take it on and want to grant cert and hear the case?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think my sense is that there was simply a – a growing skepticism may be too strong a word, but I'll use it. A growing skepticism over the, the sort of viability, the long term viability of the separate sovereign standard. Um, you know, the court often, uh, w- when they do take a case that is uh, that, that squarely asks them to revisit their precedent, you know, we're, we're very familiar with a number of instances where they have, in fact, overturned that precedent, right? Um, but this one, where they ended up seven to two, you know, retaining it. I, I do think though there, there was just a sense that w- whether they ended up affirming or reversing, there was sufficient – it had been sufficiently long and the court had changed uh, in, in such a way that it made sense to, uh, to either reaffirm it and, and provide some certainty uh, or indeed to, to overturn it as obviously two justices were hoping this would be a vehicle to do.
1: Well, that's fascinating. So thank you so much for uh, sitting down and kind of talking through this interesting doctrine with us.
0: Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Thank you.
1: This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at Ushai You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Please join us again next time for a discussion of whether judicial precedent is unconstitutional.